0: And while some were talking about the temple, that it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts, he said, As for these things which you are looking at, the days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another which will not be torn down. They questioned him, saying, Teacher, when therefore will these things happen, and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See to it that you are not misled, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is near, do not go after them. When you hear of wars and disturbances, do not be terrified, for these things must take place first, but the end does not follow immediately. Then he continued by saying to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be great earthquakes, and in various places plagues and famines, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven." But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves, for I will give you utterance and wisdom, which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute but you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends and they will put some of you to death and you will be hated by all because of my name yet not a hair of your head will perish by your endurance you will gain your lives but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies then recognize that her desolation is near Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city, because these are days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations." And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that you would add your blessing to the reading and preaching of the Word of God. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jerusalem is a substantial city. It's almost a square mile uh, during the late Second Temple period. And there were 200,000 people, it's estimated at least, that were immediately living within the city. But in 70 A.D., and then following up at a later point, some 100 plus, uh, or some close to 100, 80 to 100 years later, there was another uh, rebellion, of course, whereby the city was even further decimated. But in 70 A.D., we acceptably recognize that The temple itself and the largely the 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 city imprint uh, was removed from all the way down to its foundations, and was leveled. There was a a first Jewish-Roman war in 66 to 73, in which the Roman army began a campaign against zealots who had established a temporary season of government. In uh, they had repelled the Romans destroyed, in fact, a, one entire legion of the Roman army and returned to the city, had then reestablished a, a quasi-government with the hope of uh, restoring uh, their uh, a settlement with the Roman Empire, thus restoring their, their own independent self-rule. They even minted coins during this short period of time, the intention being that they would expel the Romans entirely and forever, and they would see the kingdom of God restored in their sense or their apprehension of it. It was not long lasting. Uh, four legions eventually would surround Jerusalem itself uh, under uh, Vespasian initially and then under Titus, his son. Titus would eventually get the victory In 70 A.D. on August 4th or thereabouts, uh, Roman forces finally overwhelmed the defenders. After having made it through the first two substantial walls, they came to the third, were unable to breach it. Finally, uh, eventually, they were able to set a fire to the temple. Uh, It burned overwhelmingly. They broke through the last wall, and they began killing many of the citizens. Uh, They had laid siege to the city on all sides. Uh, preventing anyone from leaving or coming in for whatever reason the zealots had set fire to the food supply at one point with the intention that they would so make their situation egregious that others would have to fight that God would have to intercede on behalf of his people nonetheless uh, there were internal uh, there was internal strife surrounding uh, zealots who had led initially the revi the, the revolt as well as those who were uh, more uh, politicians, as it were, in the, uh, primarily in the Pharisee party, uh, there were killings. Uh, they were killing one another. There were famine uh, and and pestilence, and uh, even cannibalism in the last days prior to uh, the Romans breaching the last wall. One point one million, according to Josephus, his numbers are questionable. Nonetheless, they are. I'm sure at least in some way representative of the truth 1.1 million people killed during the siege of which a majority were Jewish Uh, 97,000 were enslaved as as a result afterwards thousands were forced to become gladiators and eventually expired in the arena many others were forced to assist in the building of the forum of peace an ironic turn of events and eventually the Colosseum Those under 17 years old, which were few at this point, were sold into slavery. Titus and his uh, soldiers celebrated victory upon their return to Rome. Uh, There would be the Arch of Titus, which would be established, on which would be imprinted in the relief, uh, the table of the presence of God's, uh, the table of presence, and uh, a menorah, thus depicting the victory as in fact, all of these things, as well as all the internal uh, treasures of the temple, were brought into um, or were brought and, and, and paraded throughout Rome in order to show Rome's great military power. The Holy of Holies had been emptied. Uh, the most holy place was emptied of its treasures and all were put on display in the most in the center of paganism in the world at that time. Well <clears throat> Titus even himself reputedly refused to accept a wreath of victory having conquered Jerusalem at the last because he was he protested and said ultimately that he was merely a an instrument of di- divine wrath And surely this is the truth we see in this passage this morning Jesus speaking to his disciples they questioning him relating to the temple as they observe its beauty, Jesus says, what you see will be thrown down. Let's examine this account and examine the veracity of Christ's prophecy and its significance for us today as we examine this passage this morning. I believe that this passage is relevant to us today and that prophecy is always intended to move God's people to a certain perspective, a state of mind, uh, and of expectation of hope and faith, and a certain conduct of life based upon what we understand the future to hold. So, if we can draw it down into its simplest sense, God says to expect these future events. Therefore, I say in response, and depending utterly upon God's grace to do so, therefore, the, this future expectation of these events call for my moral, godly behavior based upon what I understand God will bring to fruition. Prophecy determines what we believe about the future, what we understand about God and the consummation of, which, uh, of, of, of human history to which God is bringing all things. This will lead to a certain way of life conviction about what God is calling me to do and how the Lord wants me to live future expectation and promise determine now how I obey the Lord what priorities presently I will have the faithfulness I will I will work towards morality and godliness I will engage in Josephus calls to mind he is a Roman he was previously a zealot. He was initially in rebellion against uh, the Roman Empire and, its, and the, the occupiers of the Holy Land of Jerusalem and its surrounding Judean area. He had battled against Vespasian's forces. Eventually, Vespasian captures him, makes him his slave, then eventually grants him his freedom. He becomes a citizen of Rome. He is of mixed race, uh, but he is uh, Jewish for sure. And he begins to ingratiate himself into the, the favor of his Roman occupiers and liberators and eventually a, a slavers, then liberators. And so he becomes a historian, as it were, and uh, he engages in recording a history, is with Vespasian, is with Titus, and, uh, and he records for posterity uh, these events. He tells us that he has seen, it's one of the oldest accounts of a firsthand view written for us of what the temple looked like. And his view is such that the whole of the outer works of the temple covered with gold plates glittered so dazzlingly that they blinded the eyes of the beholders, not less than one one gazed at the sun's rays themselves. Where there was no gold, the blocks of marble marble were of such a pure white that to strangers they looked like a mountain of snow. The temple was one of the most incredible buildings ever made on earth to that point. It was one of the wonders of the world. It was glorious to behold. There sitting up on the temple mount above the city, it was something to... To, to, to proclaim the beauty of, to, to stop up one's breath, to catch one's breath in one's chest. It was glorious to behold. God had commanded his people to create a beautiful temple. And of course, the first temple was a beautiful and glorious place. It was taken back up and rebuilt during the Herodian period, 20 years prior to Jesus. Herod had started, a, before Jesus uttered these words anyway, Herod had started a rebuilding project. It would go on for 50 years. There were many different uh, movements and, and changes. It wasn't done until A.D. 66. Herod largely began building, and it was an extraordinary building, but a wonder to behold and to see. The disciples are there, and every year there are changes, it seems, as rich benefactors would come and say this is needed and and give the money for changes on the, 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 the outer appearance of the temple. And so each year there were different things to marvel at, and the disciples are there. They're coming up to the temple. It's adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts, and... The disciples, as we know, in the other accounts in Matthew 24 and Mark 12, there are other accounts of Christ uh, recording these words, speaking these words, as well as others to uh, his disciples. My intent is to concentrate on Luke this morning and his particular emphasis as he records them for us. But they are there. They are admiring the temple. They are seeing its beauty. They are beholding this glorious work wrought by Herod, largely, at least on the outside. Jesus is unimpressed, really, and he gives an unimpressed reply. And he says this, as for these things which you are looking at, or literally, uh, uh, which you are marveling at, which you are, are, are proclaiming the beauty of, there will not be left one stone upon another which will not be torn down. What you observe, what you see, will not last. What you marvel most at right now in its glory will not be, continue to be. In its context, Jesus has entered triumphantly into Jerusalem. He has rebuked the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, he has said that much of their religion is an external one. They love to receive the adulation of the crowds. They love to be noticed and to be given the place of prominence in private meals and feasts and weddings. He is pointing out their empty religion. He is pointing out that though they put on a glorious show, nonetheless, internally they are, they are nothing more than a whitewashed sepulchre. They are nothing more than false practitioners of a true religion. They are false adherents of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They they are not believers. They have no interests in God. They are more than anything else, self-worshippers. And so they have begun, they have experienced, they have felt the smarting rod of Christ's disciplinary statements, his condemnation of their false religion. They know that he is speaking of them as he has given illustrations of them, unrighteous stewards as they were, unrighteous renters of what had been given to them as a glorious vineyard. They had persecuted the messengers. They had killed the son. Surely God was coming in vengeance. And it was clear in our immediate context in the last chapter, chapter 2, that God's intention is to remove from their place of authority those men who had not faithfully carried out God's mission and work, whose lives contradicted their statement that they feared the Lord. It is in that context that Jesus says specifically in identifying explicitly how God will go about removing them from that position, how God will go about destroying their empty religion, they have, in response, sent to him various nefarious men with the intention that they would ask him questions to trip him up. Their intention is to make him accountable to the crowds, catch him in something, and thus be able to bring suit against him into the courts that they might see him destroyed, condemned, removed, and their own place established more firmly. Well, Jesus has also cleansed the temple, proclaiming that they have made of that temple something other than what God had originally committed it for, that they were to proclaim the the goodness, the greatness, the glory of God. That the glory of God should be preeminently what the temple was about. And yet they had created this odd amalgam of business and self-promotion and money-changing and purchasing of of sacrificial animals sort of enterprise that was little or nothing about God. And so the people were ensconced in a system where there was usury in the very house of God. There was a marketplace of the world brought into the courts of the Lord. It was a horrendous and wicked sin of which they were guilty. And so Jesus has made it clear that this will end, that cleansing was to be done first. Barring that cleansing being effective, ultimately the Lord will bring Israel to their knees. That more than anything else, rather than the Roman Empire and the occupiers being the, the one thing most needed by the Jewish people, and the removal of that, that, more than anything what they were in need of is revival and ref- reformation, renewal in the things of God. A removal of the false shepherds over his people and the, and, and, and the putting forth of the true and only good shepherd whose people hear his voice. And who know him. And he who would not lose one of them. Well, we would look at verse six and say, <laughs> It's not a very happy comment to make now, is it? But we understand why Jesus made it in light of my just previous comments. It's not a very happy comment. Uh, if if you're there with Jesus and you behold the temple and It's a glorious thing you would see on a regular basis, at least maybe once a year, if you didn't live in Judea, you didn't live in Jerusalem, to go up into that Temple Mount to see its renovations, the glory of what Herod had made of it, this non-believing, wicked man. We might say on the surface, this isn't very happy comment. Nonetheless, it, it is in reaction to those who are viewing the grandeur of the edifice as as an evidence of God's favor. You see, Israel was guilty of doing this. They would look at the outside of that temple. They would look at what had been built. They would see the glory of this this building, this wonder of the world, this seventh or eighth wonder of the ancient world. And they would say, surely the favor of God is upon this place. And that is typically how we tend to calculate the goodness and the glory of God, isn't it? When we hear that someone has received some some untold measure of of riches, we say, Surely the Lord has blessed you. We see someone who seems to lead a trouble free life, and we say, Surely God has, has blessed you. God is good. I can tell you how many times I hear that phrase, and it's almost only ever attached to some material blessing. God is good in the midst of calamity. God is good in the midst of judgment. God is good in the midst of great and terrible tears. God is good in the midst of depression and brokenheartedness. God is always and continually good. He is infinitely good. He is never anything but good in all of his word and works. Well, these people have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. They have rejected the Messiah. So much of Israel had to this point. The very building itself was representative of the Messiah and the work that he would perform the holy of holies the table of showbread the menorah the lights lit there the entrance into on the passover into the very uh, uh, into the very presence of god with a sacrifice and an offering a sprinkling on the mercy seat the very work of the messiah the very the very layout of the temple itself displayed christ did it not and so when Christ is standing in the midst of them, they reject Him. And so it's only inevitable that God will remove from them the edifice, the, the means of sacrifice as sacrificial offerings. And in fact, because the Messiah has come, it is irrelevant, however glorious the building is. Utterly irrelevant. Because Christ has entered into the holy of holies, and he has made sacrifice for sin for all eternity, eternally, so that we would receive forgiveness of sins, cleansing of our iniquity, and the righteousness which we are lacking would be granted to us, counted unto our account, reconciled to God, welcomed into the presence of the Father, each and every believer enjoying the priesthood of all believers, entering through Christ into the very presence of God, according to his mercy, his grace, his eternal love. Isn't the temple and its accoutrements, as beautiful as they are, irrelevant for the believer? In light of Jesus Christ? Christ is the temple of God. And he himself tabernacles amongst us, in us, with us. Well, 50 years of construction, it was a beautiful place. <clears throat> people are miscalculating and saying, surely this beautiful edifice says that God, God is here. God is pleased with his people. God is pleased with the religious authorities of our place. And they are blessed of God, and this is not the case. Jesus has said it, He has warned them, He has repeatedly said it. He has rejected them after they have rejected Him. He has warned them of the judgment to come. He has warned them of the state of their souls. He has told them and shown them their empty religion. He has rebuked their unbelief. He has shown mercy. After mercy, after mercy, after mercy, after mercy to them. Even now he does not call forth the very legions of heaven to come and destroy them. In fact, even after the cross is completed and the work there and Peter stands before the people in Jerusalem and proclaims. This one whom you condemned is in fact the son of God, the Messiah of God. And now turn from your sins and believe in him. Thousands are added to the church daily. Perhaps there were many amongst them, even those who had opposed Jesus, amongst the religious authorities of the day. There were at least two believers we know of. I'm certain that there were others. There is great mercy even in judgment. Great mercy even in judgment. Well, the disciples hear of this and... There is a a certain wonderment of it and some of the in the crowd in the other uh, accounts tell us that the crowd ridiculed him for this and in his various other statements about bringing the temple down into the dust and rebuilding it after three days. And in another context, it was a remarkable thing to consider that stones which weighed 100 tons, 40 feet long in the deepest parts of the foundation of this temple could be brought down into the very level of the soil. And the city and the walls and everything around it could be leveled to such an extent that one would look and you would see a bald-headed mount and there is no temple left. This glorious, glorious place. It's like Jesus going into the center of Washington, D.C. with all of its... Many different natural muse- or museums, and they're not all natural museums, but museums and places of memorial and, and uh, the, the Capitol building as resplendent, as glorious as it is, and the White House and the Senate and all the other go- various government buildings. And him saying in the space of only a few days, all these things will be leveled. There will be nothing left here at all. Well, Jesus has made this clear that this is, in fact, what will take place. Josephus records for us that, uh, but for all the rest of the wall surrounding Jerusalem, it was so thoroughly laid even with the ground by those that dug it up to the foundation that there was left nothing to make those that came thither believe it, Jerusalem had ever been inhabited. This was the end which Jerusalem came to by the madness of those that were for the innovations. A city otherwise of great magnificence and of mighty fame among, among all mankind. I was reading this morning and it came across in my news feed online that in fact, the Christian Post had reported that they were, fi- they were finding in the, the, the Russian compound, one of the oldest sections of Jerusalem, they have been finding all sorts of different uh, little uh, pro- projects or projectiles that had been hurled against the walls. They have found all sorts of various sizes, as well as armor-penetrating arrows that were sent uh, by the Roman occupying forces. The fact is these events were completed. They were fulfilled. In 70 AD, this city was brought down to the ground. You may question Josephus' account of the fact, but further archaeologists who came after, and at later points, had the observation that Yes, indeed, Josephus' account was true. By the time the Romans got done, there was nothing left that would ever lead anyone to think that there was a great temple, a wonder of the world there, never mind a great city. And so the disciples are asking, when? When, Jesus? What, What are we to look for? What are the signs that would portend the carrying out of these things? Timing is everything, and their primary focus is uh, believing what he's saying. And, of course, they do believe, and we're to commend them for that. He says it, and they immediately say, Teacher, when, therefore, will these things happen? There's faith behind those statements they, to be commended for that, to take at face value whatever Jesus says is true, to believe and trust. And that's what they're doing. They're asking for a greater understanding of when these things will Will be uh, will 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 begin, but Jesus Jesus will will refocus their concern from from timing to trust. They're worried about the timing of it. When will these things occur? Will it occur during our lifetimes? What signs are we to look for in the unfolding events of humanity and of history? Uh, when will we see these things take place? And Jesus says, uh, don't focus so much primarily on the timing of these things, but rather focus on, on trust. My, trusting my words. And so often this is the question with Christians. We we hear, we understand what God's word says. We understand what Christ tells us about our future. And we want to know about timing. We want to know about the timing of when God will answer our requests and when he will give us what we have asked for. I want to know when. Tell me what to look for. And yet, what we are commanded to do is trust the Lord with our future, a future that is unknown, at least in its particulars, but which is fully known with regard to its ultimate end. Christ is coming again. Jesus will have much to say about his second coming in next week's sermon and passage and text in the remaining portion of this chapter. But right now he's telling them about the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem. Jesus' words will refocus their thinking to, 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 to away from the timing uh, and more so to what God will accomplish and what he has promised for, for them. <clears throat> There's an assumption behind their words, though, and the assumption behind the words of the disciples is that they have equated the destruction of the temple with the end of all things in the coming of the Lord. They believe that both those events will culminate together in one another and and will overlap each other. They've connected both those events, the destruction of the temple and the return of Jesus Christ. And that's why we need what Jesus clarifies here. He has clarified for them explicitly. Verse 8, See to it that you are not misled, for many will... uh, uh, will come in my name saying I am he and the time is near do not go after them when you hear of wars and disturbances do not be terrified for these things must take place first but the end does not follow immediately there was a separation between the destruction of the temple and the destruction of the uh, th- the, the, the 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 Jewish religious um, uh, exclusivity and the sacrificial system and the temple on earth and the second return of the savior or the, the 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 second coming of the savior the lord jesus christ the importance of differentiating between those two events immediately surrounding the destruction of the temple and the immediacy of this tribulation as it affected jesus's own subsequent generation the actual coming of the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of all things, the culmination of all time and history and of the world and the earth and the universe as we know it, these are not to be equated as the same event. And so first, the destruction of Jerusalem, the end of the sacrificial system, the bringing down of Jewish authorities and of those who would oppress God's people. And then in verses 8 through 24, He explains the circumstances that would take place. There will be false messiahs, those who will come and say, I am the messiah, I'm the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, I am the Jesus Christ. There is a person up in Northampton who has legally changed their name in Massachusetts, a town only about 20-25 minutes north of us. His name is Lord Jesus Christ, legally. Obviously, he's saying something about himself. Uh, of which he is entirely and completely wrong. But there are many false messiahs and individuals who claim to interpret the signs. There will be nation against nation, wars and rumors of wars. Of course, we know that we live in such a time as this, and the disciples did as well. Every disciple of Christ in every age will undergo or or hear wars and rumors of wars. There will be environmental disasters and natural threats and not necessarily not necessarily engendered because of the work of mankind they may not be anthropocentric or anthrocentered much as what we are told today natural threats against human life earthquakes and famines pestilence terror great heavenly signs i don't know about you but i was impressed this last week with a supermoon as I drove back from New York and saw the moon on my right the whole way illuminating the highway it was a glorious thing you could see the Maria on the surface of the moon it's a beautiful thing I think in my lifetime we were talking with my wife and I and the children we have seen a red moon we have seen a blue moon multiple times it's not so rare as one would think we have seen supermoons. we have seen portents in the skies right now we're in the midst of great meteor showers I have a neighbor on my street who looked up this morning and saw two orange lights going simultaneously with each other parallel to one another off across the horizon she wondered what is that and everyone was saying well they're meteorite showers and there are many who would say well what are the signs in the heavens there are many things that are unexplainable and that Anyone who says, I can tell you unequivocally without question what that means. They're wrong, first of all. But any of these things do in fact portend the end of this world. They do say that Jesus Christ will come, that what we observe is not eternal. That everything that we observe in our universe is breaking down, coming to an eventual end. Science can even tell you that. There are only so many years that our suns, uh, around which the earth rotates, will last. Matter, energy is breaking down. The world in which we live is deteriorating. Life will one day come to an end. There will be no other living human being on the face of this earth. But when that moment comes, it will be because Christ has come. It will not be for any other reason or purpose. There will be all sorts of things. Persecution, imprisonment, inquisitions, accusations, betrayal, the destruction of Jerusalem, surrounded by armies, a desolation, great distress, wrath against this people. And Jesus, who is Lord, warns, oh, it will be hard in that day for pregnant women, women with little children, because the wrath of God is coming against unbelief. The relevance of this text, I think, is found in, 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 in four different ways, and I, I want to review those with you now, and I promise I'll get through them quickly. <clears throat> it's echoed to all of us who remain. There are three cautions and one comfort that Jesus gives, and the cautions are simply this. First, do not be deceived. This word to the disciples is a word that we need to hear. Moses of Crete in the 5th century. Anne Lee, a shaker, Christ's female counterpart, she believed, in 1772. The Reverend Sung Young Moon, who has made messianic claims. David Koresh, false messiahs, self-proclaimed Christ's. They're everywhere. There's a retired traffic policeman who's Visarion over in Siberia, who has 10,000 people living with him in commune, who says he is the Messiah. I've never heard of him. Jesus of Kipwe, Zambia, he's a taxi driver. Henry Cristo down in Brazil. Jesus Matayoshi in Japan. It's all over the earth. There are Messiahs everywhere. And they're all false. There is only one Messiah. We are warned to expect an event where every eye will see and every ear will hear and every person on the face of the earth will know who He is in the clouds. As He comes, every eye will see, every ear will hear, every knee will bow, and the Lord Jesus Christ will be proclaimed in all of His glory and all the world will see. He will not be hidden in the forests of Siberia. He will not be down in the deepest reaches of the Brazilian rainforest. He will come so that every eye and every ear will see and hear Jesus come in glory. Don't be deceived. Don't be carried off by unprincipled men who proclaim that they are the Messiah. I can say, have we not learned in this generation? I can say all sorts of things about myself. It doesn't mean that these are objectively true. I can say this morning that I am a Volkswagen. If I say it, you can laugh, but I am not a Volkswagen. And none but Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, is the Messiah of God's people. Don't be caught up with seemingly peaceful looking individuals who are psychotically ill or malevolently evil and who foist themselves on the people of this world and say that they are the Messiah. So don't follow the charlatans. Don't be deceived. Know the word of God. Seek the mind of God. Don't be caught up in vain speculation and numerologies or of holding God to our timeline all of these individuals have an explicit priority, either self-enrichment or they run counter to the word of God. Don't believe any of them. Secondly, caution number two, do not be terrified. It is terrifying sometimes to, to, to be in the midst of a great calamity. Christine and I, when I attended seminary down in Mississippi... There were lots of tornadoes that went through and went near and went over our home. And we there was an air raid siren on the, on the corner of our street, not two houses down. When that thing went off, grab the mattresses, get to the center hall of the house, and get under. And that's what you do. Because you never know when, in fact, one tornado, worse than another, will come over and completely remove the roof off of your head or off of the house and leave you exposed along with your children. And so that's what you do. Now it's it's disheartening and scary, and it and it feels like it's completely and totally random. But what Jesus is cautioning is that all of the events that we may ever see or behold in this world are God ordained. God ordained. There is nothing that we will ever see, nothing we will ever undergo that God has not approved beforehand, commanded to take place and has, in fact, declared it necessary. Jesus says these are necessary events. Trials will continue. Wars and persecution and famine have continued. They are, under, they are going on in the world today, even now. But what are they all intended for, along with trials and persecutions and difficulty? God is preparing a people for himself, sanctifying unto his great name, the bride of Jesus Christ, preparing the church for everlasting glory. So don't be surprised. The Christian life is fraught with danger. There are always trials and tribulations. The path is always one of difficulty. You and I, we have need of endurance. There is cataclysmic upheaval of this city, Jerusalem, but it doesn't undermine God's purposes. And the death of His people and the persecution and famine of His people, even those, do not undermine his purposes. He is bringing all eventually to a glorious end. So, believer, don't build your foundation here. Doesn't mean you can't build your home, that you can't have a, a reasonably comfortable life with your family and children if God so supplies your needs to such an extent but don't build a foundation that will extend beyond your life or one that you place your greatest hope and affection upon. Be careful that you don't so set out roots in this world that you neglect the care of your soul and forsake the Lord Jesus Christ. Put your home, put other people in your life, put all of your resources and all the things that you possess in a particular category that is less than living for Christ and standing before him one day with great joy. Third caution, be ready to serve the Lord at his direction. He's telling his disciples, and they particularly and uniquely so, underwent significant persecution. They suffered greatly. All of, most of them were killed, did not live to an old age. Some were crucified, others were killed in horrendous and horrible ways altogether, disemboweled. There were some who were believers and or amongst the Jews who were taken into Rome. One of the great zealots um, was taken and actually cast off the wall, uh, a a rampart and cast forth and uh, splatted ultimately on the ground far, far beneath. Uh, that the disciples of Christ were persecuted greatly. And Jesus says, they're they're going to persecute you. They're going to lay their hands on you. And more than this, your family will betray you. This is a message for every believer, is it not? Doesn't Scripture tell us that we are to expect... Trials and persecution, tribulation. Didn't Jesus tell all of his followers that tribulation is something that every believer will experience? So what are we to do in light of that? Prepare ourselves for the hatred and opposition of the world. There's nothing worse than churches, pastors, individual Christians, who somehow are so beguiled by the world that they think that they can make their message so palatable, so watered down that... They lose their own effectiveness. They're doing no good for God. They become friends with the world. The church is not in the business of bringing the world into the church. The church is in the business of bringing the church into the world, going out into the world, making disciples in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet so much of the world has come into the church There's some significant parts of Christ's church that has forgotten the word of God. Ichabod is placed over the building that once housed many godly men and women who built and gave toward the kingdom of Jesus Christ and the establishment of the kingdom in the life of the community of godly believers. Increasingly, we hear government authorities and People in the press telling us that the single greatest threat to America's security and freedom is Bible-believing Christians, homeschooling parents, men and women and their children who believe that marriage is between a woman and a man, that homosexuality is sin, and God created man male and female. But it's more than that. Christianity is not a political force. Christianity and following Jesus Christ is not a, 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 a sort of moral approach to the world in and of itself exclusively, nor is it some, some sort of set of political beliefs. The world hates and opposes and is rebelling against the Lord Jesus Christ. Their rightful king and sovereign. That's what it's all about. So you and I should prepare for the scorn of the world and not be ashamed of the gospel of God and not get weighed down with our sins and thus take away our own effectiveness, but rather serve the Lord and be prepared to serve Him in the great and evil day. Fourthly, there's a word of comfort as we bring this message to a close. It's in verse 18. Yet not a hair of your head will perish by your endurance you will gain your lives now how can he say that when he has just said in verse 16 and they will put some of you to death so he says and they will put some of you to death but then he says not a hair of your head will be harmed you have need of endurance I believe that what Jesus is saying ultimately here is that not a hair of their head will be harmed apart from the permission of their everlasting sovereign God. That not a hair of their head will be harmed unless God in his glory and in his wisdom has counted their life worthy of suffering for Jesus Christ. That none of it is happenstance. None of it is accidental None of it will ultimately find its causation in the wickedness of mankind, but rather in the ultimate and eternal purposes of God. You are immortal until God is pleased to take you home. And so in God's eyes, He protects His people and He preserves them such that we can say, no matter what occurs, it is according to the will of God my Father. No one can touch nor harm me unless it is His will. And if it is His will, then God help me to bring glory to His name. There's comfort in knowing that every circumstance has been foreordained and is necessary. There's great assurance here. Eternal life, if we endure... Nothing can or will ever separate us from our God, even those who endure great sacrifice or who must ultimately give their life for the kingdom of God. The Lord has promised that whatever is lost will be manifoldly returned in the kingdom of heaven. Even a hair of their heads cannot be harmed apart from his will. Truth, ultimately, dear friends, as we conclude, is intended to prepare us for something wasn't, wasn't this a great event? We understand that in 70 AD, when we have archaeological evidence, we have testimony of historians, multiple historians, we have our, our archaeologists are still finding today evidence of the Roman assault against, uh, against Jerusalem. And the destruction of the temple, they have, found, they have found buildings with roofs that have caved in after great fire. The whole city was torched. What should we do? What should we do? Well, next week we'll unfold more about Christ and his return, the end of the world. But doesn't it show us that if God is bringing all things to a final consummate end that glorifies his great name, should we not be prepared for that day? And if God is so working in human circumstances, in human history, and brings... What was one of the great wonders of the world down to nothing? Isn't it true that we should therefore not trust in our resources and things and not go another day without making certain that we have fled from the hills to the Lord Jesus Christ in light of future events which we know will take place? Do you remember what what the angels of God told Lot and his wife when they were fleeing from Sodom and Gomorrah? Flee. Flee and do not look back. My dear friends, we, we, we look back altogether too often at this world, and we are altogether too distracted by the things which we possess and enjoy these are good and lovely gifts from God who is merciful to us. But do be careful that you do not worship the gift rather than the giver. Make certain that you and I must understand that the, the consummation of all things is coming. That the God who has brought Jerusalem to its knees and down into the dust of the earth will destroy the very dust of this earth. Christ is coming. Don't look back longingly at your old way of life. Flee. Flee to the Lord Jesus Christ. Rather, isn't it better to to be humbled under the mighty hand of God rather than to fall fearfully into the hands of the living God who is bringing about his wrath upon this world and who is bringing it all to a final end. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God it is appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment what do you do until that time knowing that all things are coming to an end least of all your life one day soon your body will go to the grave turn turn from your sins why should you die Why should you be lumped in with all the rest of this earth? Because you've heard the gospel. You've seen and you know that the world is coming to an end. You know that God is working powerfully in human history. You know that there are wars and rumors of war. You see the unfolding of what Christ has promised would uh, would unfold. And So prepare to meet your God this day. Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not necessary that you die. Rather, it is necessary that you turn. Would you rather die and enter into a Christless eternity of everlasting torment and judgment rather than to turn to a God who says, you will not be harmed apart from my will. All things ultimately are leading and turning for your good. You will glorify my name. And I will receive you as my son. I urge you, dear brothers and sisters, don't, don't take another step, but flee to the Lord. Enter in at the wicked gate by faith. Enter into the Lord Jesus Christ. Commit your way to him. Turn and repent of your sins. Believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have already trusted in Christ, then you know what your future uh, uh, portends, and that is that one day you will be with the Lord. What manner of person ought you to be in regard to holiness, knowing that all things are coming to such an end and that Christ is coming soon? May God help us to endure. Let's pray.